Hey, there we go. It says we're streaming in the right area, so hopefully we're going here. We have exited host mode. I better post this. There it is. Hey. Hey. Sorry I'm a little early, but uh, my schedule's such that uh, I wanted to get one in today since I didn't do yesterday, and this was the chime I had. So hopefully if, you, if you're waiting for six, you can watch this puppy tomorrow or the next day on the YouTube or on Twitch if you'd like. You can still see the questions if you watch it on Twitch. So another, so Louis Gohmert having COVID is very funny. Louis Gohmert going to his staff in person to tell them that he had it in a building is even funnier. But he'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's not going to give it to anybody. Like there's a picture of him or there's a video of him coming out of a, a very small unventilated room with Bob Barr. He's not going to get it. And if he does, he'll be fine. He will be fine. They'll all be fine. The more evil you do, the more you are... Uh, protected from COVID. It's like, a, it's like a, the, 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 the disease itself is acting out the will of, of all of the most uh, demonic uh, demiurgical forces in culture. Because even as this uh, thing has, you know, thrown a huge monkey wrench into the social fabric and might very well have doomed the Trump administration to electoral defeat, it has only strengthened the power of uh, our Dracula-like rulers. Yeah, like if the more evil you do, the more antibodies you form against coronavirus. But we can't tell people that because then they're all going to go to law school. Boom. Zing. That was a good 90s joke. People hated lawyers in the 90s. And you can make an argument that the whole anti-lawyer thing in the 90s, Lionel Hutz on down, that was part of the propaganda operation against torts that was going on. Because by that point, corporations had won most of the big battles about regulation, uh, but that left the courts as the way to for consumers to get recompense for recklessness and uh, dangerous behavior by corporations was but to sue them. Uh, and so lo and behold, we spent a decade talking about how awful lawyers are all the time. Because some woman pours hot coffee on herself and sues McDonald's. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows at this point that that whole thing was a scam and that the top coffee that the famous coffee lady uh, got from McDonald's was scalding hot to the point that she had significant burns and required skin grafts, which meant that they were incredibly negligent to hand that to her in a fucking drive-thru, and her lawsuit was completely and totally justified.
But has anybody has anybody heard of any like knowingly actively evil people who died of COVID? Apparently, some guys on death row died of COVID, but like those aren't the ones you want because they've already been punished. You know, like if they're evil, first of all, they're evil even if they've killed people is very much smaller than the evil that is being perpetrated by people at the top of our cannibalistic hierarchy. And they were already in prison. I saw the Deadspin thing. Uh, I think the, the subscription model, I mean, as long as there's going to be media on the internet, it looks like the subscription model is going to be what wins it out. Uh, the, pr the reason that a lot of people dismissed that for years and said, no, no, who's going who's gonna to pay for stuff that's free? Uh, the, question, the, the answer to that is they will pay if they feel that they have some sort of buy-in or connection with the project. Like, it, it, there has to be something social that transcends a pure transaction to have that happen. Because if it is just a pure transaction, if the media is as alienated from us as, like, movie studios are, we're going to pirate, we're going to go around paywalls, always. The thing that's going to stop us from doing that is if we have an investment, if we feel like we're literally having an investment in the thing. And I think our show is part of that. I think Deadspin, the new Deadspin thing is going to be part of that. And uh, it boils down to, sadly to say, clout in a way. Uh, it boils down to the ability to have an online profile that has buy-in from people. And it's going to have to fill, it's going to fill the void of traditional media, which is completely collapsing because there's no money in it, but they're all for-profit companies and that doesn't really work. But, yeah, it, I, and they're all going to go away because as long as it's just some, you know, conglomerate, some faceless entity, no one is going to want to pay for it if they can get it for free. People will pay for something they could hypothetically get for free if they feel like they're contributing to something. And that's going to that's gonna fill the gap. And you could argue that that's a good sign because it indicates the that people are finding the limits of a totally marketized media space. They're seeing, oh, shit. When there's no public interest in media, it actually is terrible. It sucks. And it, all the good stuff is removed because the market stuff was always about efficiency of transmission and, and you know, things like that. It was never about the, uh, the quality. If any, it, it only inhibited the quality. Somebody says that conglomerates should stop paying for punditry and pay for journalism. There's two reasons they won't. One, journalism is much, much more expensive than punditry. And the margins in media won't allow for that, even if they wanted to. But I think what we're, one, of the, one of the realities of post-70s uh, crisis capitalism is that a lot of these choices are made. Not uh, out of any... Not, a lot of these choices to streamline and, and uh, you know, pivot... All this stuff. It's not just to fuck with people, and it's not just to suppress good work. It's to save those razor-thin profit margins. And that's true of a lot of industries. So they're not going to pay for reporting. I mean, obviously, there's a, you know, like there's the hey man, they're going to they don't want to find out stuff that they, they don't want to they don't want us to know this stuff. They're not going to pay to find it out, and there's truth to that. But also, it's just too fucking expensive. 
it's going to have to be ad like the future of journalism, like actual investigative journalism is going to be advocacy based around the crowdfunding model. Like, hey, why isn't anybody reporting on X, Y or Z? Someone should. And then money's people are going to people who want to see that reported on are going to spend money to see it reported on. And that's and that's what it's going to be. And and I think people have been advocating that for a long time and a lot of uh a lot of early adopters to that model failed because we hadn't reached the point we're at now of total and complete alienation from the absolute garbage hose of online media. Like now we realize that they're like, oh, you, ca you cannot get media for free and expect it to have any quality in a, in a capitalist system. Uh, somebody's asking about the next unemployment site. I mean, we have the bids, right? The Democrats, the Republicans bid too, and the Democrats said, whatever, we're not married to six. So that implies that they'll just end up at two. But I don't know. Things are really bad, and I think a few people in Washington seem to get at least some level of how bad things are, like Mnuchin, which might go against the ideological sort of head-in-the-ass uh, detachedness of the rest of these idiots. So we'll see. I will say, though, I don't want to get smug about it, but just uh, when people were saying everything's going to run out at the end of, of July and everything, and then everything, I no way they're going to let it run out in July. They're going to wait until the last minute so that it doesn't look like, uh, it's so that you don't get used to it, so that it's always emergency funding and so that they can have an excuse to pare it down in negotiations. But, uh, no, it was always going to happen. Come on. Uh, this is an interesting question. This is an interesting point out that if, the, if Didspin 2.0 is good enough, it's going to get bought by a VC thing. Well, see, that's where, that's where like, the question of trust comes in. You know? Like the, the, the subscriptions are pouring in for this because people know these writers and they think they know what their values are. And they, that, they think that that militates against them selling out. Uh, and there the question is like not just their beliefs, but also their ability to thrive. If they're successful enough, I don't know if there would be pressure for them to have to sell out. Especially, I don't know. I think overhead comes up to a lot of it because I think reading the stories of digital media companies that have gone under, uh, the question of overhead seems like a huge one. Because all these places, in order to maintain, in order to impress their VC uh, donor, their VC funders, would have big, multi-level Manhattan real estate offices with fucking sushi and all that, and then like even if you get rid of the perks. You still have the real, but you still have the this the fixed overhead of the the infrastructure, and that's like that's what if there's a potential for for some something like the Deadspin relaunch to be viable, it's if they realize the 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 lack of necessity for that. We're not trying to impress VCs, so we don't have to have a fucking office. If they buy an office, that'll be very annoying. I will say that. Don't buy offices, for the love of God. At least not ones that aren't like anything more than a, than a fraction of a fraction of, of, of the amount of money you're paying. 
It sure shit cannot be any kind of like big big expense. Uh, podcast thing in terms of consolidation, the podcast thing is going to be interesting because it looks like uh, fucking Spotify is making a play to try to own the podcasting genre. They got everything. They got Rogan. They got Last House podcast on the left. Um, I bet that when the ukulele playing dumbass who owns Patreon fucks it up, they're probably going to buy his uh, his uh, database and his you know uh, subscription. But then Spotify will get bought by somebody. It'll all end up being owned by Disney. Serious Oz Stitcher, and the, so, at, so Stitcher's the other one. At some point, Stitcher and. Uh, at some point, Stitcher and Spotify are going to be it. And then one of them is going to... They're all going to get bought by Disney. Spoiler alert. I, I, I don't... Obviously, Laugh Podcast on the left isn't equal to Rogan. I was just shocked to see it go to uh, Spotify. Because, like, Rogan is essentially a commercial radio show in a lot of ways. He sits there and he talks for four hours. It's like Imus. He has sponsors... You know, and he reads this up. It just feels like Imus. Whereas last podcast, like that was a p- Patreon model for a while. I mean, eventually they got ads and stuff, but it just feels more uh, indie. And the fact that it got bought out like that, that's what really made me feel like, damn, Spotify's making a move. But yeah, we're... Uh, it's all going to get consolidated unless people can like create durable, low overhead models for 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 subscription. And the problem with that is you have to get buy-in, like I'm saying, first, because you can't. Because if nobody knows who you are to begin with, they're not going to they're not going to risk giving you money. You have to have a like a built-in audience, and that's where clout comes in. It really does come down to the clout war and the clout chase, the clout grind. Because if you're not on there getting clout, no one's going to fucking risk... No one's going to know enough about you to, first of all, even know that you're, you're doing your own thing. Or certainly to give you fucking money to do so. So, more, incentive, more incentives for people to uh, develop that takes. The big public crack... And I'm, I'm as responsible for this, this model existing as anybody, but... The thing I console myself in is just knowing that this is not the this is not the doing of any discrete section of peop- of society. This is this is part and parcel of the intensification of uh, exploitation, not necessarily intensity of like labor, but but uh, exploitation and alienation of the self. Like if there's no without the imperial core or without the industrial core, and with an insufficient economic base, uh, in service industry and stuff to to facilitate, like productive work for large portions of the population, uh, the option is to auto exploit your your personality to make living your job in some way. By, by, by attracting people to your orbit. TikTok, podcasts, 
uh, Twitter, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And it's because uh, it's an alternative to a, a, a wildly bleak uh, economic uh, system outside of, of those, those social entrepreneur opportunities. Oh boy, the honk pill. Man, I won't say her name, but the person who compared the grill pill to the honk pill today on Twitter was very funny to me. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, honk pill is some painful 4chan nerd bullshit uh, about like, it's like ironic Nazism that's not ironic, whatever. It's all the kind of really cool stuff that, I don't know, when, when you start talking about the honk pill, and then your next words are, this is extremely dangerous. That really is, to me, a sign that you need to fucking log the fuck off. It's the honk pill. And I know, I know, I know, fascism is often uh, intentionally clownish and, and, uh, and theatrical and buffoonish. And that that's part of what cloaks it. But in this case, you're talking about an actual handful of people. All of whom have spent their entire adult lives, to the extent that they're adults, and most of them are kids, on the internet. And it's not even like they're the scary hacker guys going on like the dark web to assassinate their fucking middle school principal. It's, they're just posting cringe all day, every day. But anyway, these are like ironic Nazis or something. And, and this person says that uh, the reason that they're the same is that they both say... Uh, LOL, nothing matters. And the thing that that indicates to me more than anyone, anything, is just how, how built into people, to the point where they don't even, I don't even think they realize it, uh, in their minds, the connection between uh, politics and posting is. Like, the number, it's, it's amazing. Like, it's been very clear... I, the, ex the explicit argument has always been log off and do something real because you will get captured by a false anti-dialectical cave. Uh, uh, you're walking into Plato's cave uh, on purpose. Don't do that. But what people hear is stop log, log off means stop posting. That means stop sharing content. That means stop arguing with people. And that means stop caring because caring is posting. And I understand, I, I really understand why people think that because there's so few avenues for most people to effectively act. But that's why you gotta log off because then you have to find one. You have to. And yeah, some of these guys, by the way, some of these honk dudes, they're probably going to do a school shooting or like a, uh, they're going to kill people probably, but I mean, it's weird. I think that there was a common understanding among like educated people for a while that yes, discrete political, but also uh, uh, pop culture objects can be triggers for people to commit violence, but that it's never the thing itself that leads to the violence. I think we had that, like, kind of assumed for a long time, except for, you know, the, the crazy Christian right. But then, 
because everyone started huddling in the cave, uh, they stopped thinking that way. And I can kind of understand the reasoning of like, well, if everyone's online more and putting more energy into online, then that means that the, the acts that they carry out are going to be more, uh, they're more likely, or uh, they can be more influenced by like violent content and by violent politics to do an act. And the thing is, that might be true, but if it is, it's not the discrete memes or politics that's the problem. It is the internetification of life. Like at every level, the proximate triggers for, for violence, for, for, for the proximate triggers for unorganized lone wolf political violence uh, is the same as for school shooters uh, and, and general social misfits. Uh, it's and those those those, those urges are, are generated by by I'm sorry by a fucking material economic base. I hate to sound like a broken record. And it's our inability to face that that makes us flee to social fixes. Because if we can ban X, Y, or Z, then we can remove the the proximate triggers. And it's like yes, you can, but you've done nothing to stop the alienation. That's at the heart of it. And that once again, she's like, yeah, but what can you do? And it's like, I don't know either. But I know for shit you can't, I know sure as shit you can't do it by engaging at the symbolic level. All I know is it won't be found there. What it is, I don't know. But it won't be found there. That means everyone is required to do something else. And a lot of people, they don't want to. Not just they can't think of one. They wouldn't want to do something else if they could. And to them I say, Tough. But it's not nihilism. Jesus Christ. It's just absurd. Nihilism isn't even real. There aren't any nihilists. Everybody has some sort of fucking uh, uh, motivating like architecture for the world. Some value. Like personal hedonism is not nihilism. You believe in your own pleasure. Oh boy. Uh, I gotta say, when I saw the uh, when I saw that the Washington Post was capitalizing white to acknowledge like the cultural, the unified cultural like experiences of whiteness and oh boy, chill, got a chill running down the spine. Not good stuff. I mean, I think it's probably an overstatement to say that that's going to contribute in any real way to in, uh, intensifying racism and white nationalism, but I think that. It's, it's a troubling current of response to the Black Lives Matter movement, I would say that. And it's one that white frailty also echoes, which is, and white frailty says specifically, white people need to be racially aware of themselves as white. And that is what the uh, Washington Post wants. They want white people to be aware of themselves as white. Now, how much damage that does when the Washington Post says it to their bunch of fucking coffee table, uh, you know, fucking liberal... Uh, uh, professional class readers all sitting in front of their uh, their breakfasts or, or clicking on it at their office jobs uh, or you know white frailty to her pod of uh, you know nervous Warren voting uh, suburbanites uh, who like have maybe a, white, a black neighbor that makes them nervous and they don't know what to do about it it probably doesn't matter what any of them think but in general as a response to, to the acknowledgement of racial discrimination in society, 
telling white people in a period of unprecedented for the modern era, economic uh, and social dislocation and dissolution, that there, that's a recipe for, oh, that's the race war you got going on there. You got that race war going. Oh, yeah, no, mon ami, oh, share. You want that good race war? You want that good race war? Well, first, first you go put in that, that collapsing economy. Oh, you want to put that in there. You want everybody to be precarious. Oh, you want everybody terrified. They either lost their job, they know somebody lost their job, or their job no good. Yeah, you want that. Oh, you want something else? How about that social network? How about that social network falling apart? How about all bonds of community just dissolving like acid? How about that? that? You put that in there? Oh, that's some good. How about pandemic disease? How about social dislocation? How about urban? How about some urban conflict? How about total... Uh, uh, dissolution of faith in political systems? How about uh, the destruction of a shared reality? How about we do that and then on top of that, oh, that's good, but that's not going to get you that deep good race war. You won't get that deep good race war you put in some of that white racial awareness on top of that. You tell white people in that environment in that environment that they should think more about being white and what that means. Because the assumption of the fucking Washington Post people and of Robin DiAngelo is that everybody's like them. Everybody is a good, college-educated, etiquette-acculturated liberal. And that when you tell them, hey, you know, you're white, it's going to make them consider their privilege. You're right, I am white. Let me think about what it means to be white in terms of what a burden it is to be white, of, of guilt, of, of, of generational trauma inflicted, and how I have to rectify that. And how I, every day, am contributing to this. That's what they would do if they got reminded they were white. So that's what everybody should do. Well, not everybody did your little fucking paw to do. Nobody, no, not everybody went to the crumpet and tea circuit and learned that racism is impolite. Not that it's really bad. That's not really what you learn. You learn that it's impolite. And so when they hear, as their jobs are fucking going away and as everyone in their neighborhood is dying of fucking either COVID or opium uh, addiction... Uh, you know what? Uh, what does it mean to be a discreet, a unified culture within a polyglot uh, social institution that is falling the fuck apart? Completely collapsing. Who are we to... What's the new order? As this dissolves, as everyone loses faith that there is a, a, a stable future in something called the United States of America, what will we pick up the pieces with? What heuristics will we use to choose friend from foe as reorganizing in the rubble? Here's Robin DiAngelo on the fucking Washington Post with a nice ready-made one for you. Race. Who can you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Who can you trust? The answer for most people is going to be somebody who have a cultural affinity and, uh, and continuity with. Which... You can't really afford all that multicultural stuff in the context of crisis and collapse. At least that's what people are going to be thinking. That's why right now, the, 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 like the social ferment happening right now, the collapse happening right now, could be very good. In fact, it could save this planet if it, if it's ha if it happened early enough to, to establish like new foundations that can push us away from capitalism and its destruction of the environment. But man, do we not have the left institutions for it right now. That's the horrible thing. That's the thing that's so terrifying. And things like this fill the void. And that's why I fear if there is, a, if there is like a significant buckling and, and, and the unified infrastructure and unified control and unified order and a monopoly on state violence are compromised, that people are going to do anything other than clan up 
along the most obvious lines. And a lot of what's considered to be on the left when we're talking about uh, race is aiding that. I don't think for a lot of people in, on purpose, not everybody's a CIA COINTELPRO agent, I think because they, they feel guilt. They, they, they feel personally, as a white person, the beneficiary of racial, uh, uh, of, of racial inequality and perpetuated racial violence. And the thing is, they are. They do. Of course they do. But it's a question, what do you do about it? And the answer for people, especially people who have had the pinky extending lessons in college, is to say, uh, I will renounce my privilege and I will, I will, I will basically uh, 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 put myself prostrate before uh, uh, the people I have wronged. And the, that instinct is very bound by, by I would say, social, social, at the level of social, Honestly, it's, a lot of it is college. I've said it before. People don't go to college not to feel guilty or to get brainwashed. They go to college to get a job. But one of the things they learn is, if you want a bourgeois life, you need a bourgeois job. And this is what bourgeois values are. That's what college has always been for doing. And, and, and so people who have had that experience have, are more likely to have that response to the horror. But what they end up doing is they end up unintentionally reifying racial difference as foundational saying like there's no way to really have like even relationships between the races because of the because of the buried uh trauma and mutual distrust i mean maybe you could use that to work on something in a context where everybody has to get along because they're i don't know uh they work at the same company and it's a fucking uh diversity training which is the model for a lot of this stuff or a college classroom but if it's a bunch of people who don't, who have, you have no like persuasive authority over, I'm not talking about state authority. There's no state authority really. There's not really, there's only, only the echo of state authority on the work, on the, uh, in most workplaces, most office workplaces and in college campuses. What is there in the person of the boss and the person of coworkers, classmates and teachers is social authority that you are invested in. You wouldn't be there if you weren't. You wouldn't be at that job. You wouldn't be at that college if you weren't invested. We're just Americans. We just all dropped in here without any, uh, any agreement. Any, and we never, and most of us have not been acculturated through processes whereby we in, instinctively uh, uh, adhere to a social authority. In fact, uh, the way capitalism is hyper-accelerating, uh, all forms of social authority have been completely destroyed and, and turned into discrete, like, clannish uh, self-affirmation societies uh, built along the, the market model. Uh, of the of the subgroup of the marketed subgroup, and in that context, they have, there's no there's no especially somebody who who is suffering, somebody whose life is bad and getting worse. Especially somebody who is seeing the infrastructure that maintains social life collapse. It's hard to tell them. No, no, no. You have to feel bad for them. It's like well, yeah, and. I, in a theoretical way, but I'm not bought into your. I'm not bought into the basic premises that you have. You've not brought me along through the process, and it's impossible to because there's no self motivation to begin with. Like somebody ad ad applying to go to the college, somebody applying to go work at the job. Even if it's attenuated by, hey, I have to go to college to get a good job. 
I have to go here to work and keep a roof over my head. But like the discrete choice of in, the, 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 the illusion of choice within those things gives us a sense that we are picking something. Even if you can say we're not, we're picking a specific college, we're picking a specific employer. And, and that act of choosing within a small range of choices that have already been made for us gives us the illusion of autonomy. But it's a real sense of illusion to us. And that means that we have bought in at a psychological level to the social pressures and mores of those areas. There is no similar pressure getting people that you are, don't know to get along with your ideas on race. There's no way to do it. And as social order collapses, the only thing that's going to be left, the residue of all this, is going to be the one undeniable fact that because of the racial, uh, the way that race has shaped the literal geography of this country, like the fucking Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago, cutting black and white Chicago in half like a fucking katana on the order of uh, uh, Richard Daly. Uh, and so social life, as a result, is wildly segregated, and that means social trust is segregated. And the only hope we have to either challenging the existing system or to fill it, or to uh, successfully fill the gap created by a more generalized crisis and collapse is if we can overcome that with a class consciousness. Oh my God. Yeah, in the afterscape, can you imagine the clans? Like, QAnon will be the foundation of a new religion. It will be, it, and in fact, I would argue that if you play this out, like a fall of the Roman Empire, post-Europe, right, where like, you, you, they effloresced all these like microstates, uh, there was the period of, of uh, conflict between like uh, temporal and spiritual authority, uh, and then finally the solidification uh, in early, the early modern era of like relatively large uh, uh, centralized states, state, centralized monarchies or empires, uh, barring the Holy Roman, of course. Uh, If you had that in the United States, like, and you had, like in the rough, like, like there was after the, the uh, fall of the Roman Empire, a bunch of different types of religion, mostly different varieties of Christianity, you know, you got your Aryan, Arianists, Nats, Gnostics, all those guys, Mar uh, what are they called, uh, monophysists. If we have a similar thing, like in a post-collapse America, QAnon, I bet, would be the one to win out. It would be, it would be the, it would be like a, and if, if, if they ended up having a, a, you know, social revival a couple thousand years from now, or not even, not even that, a couple hundred, uh, Christianity would be like, had been finally, finally fully Americanized. Like, like Mormonism, hyper, like hyper normalized Mormonism. So that's, it's like, uh. Yeah, no, not only did Jesus come to America, he fought a war in America against the forces of darkness personified by George Soros and Hillary Clinton, who, who ritually ate babies to give them strength uh, in the name of Satan. And there was like a, a, a battle, and, uh, and Jesus was like temporarily routed. Jesus and Donald Trump were temporarily routed from the field, but they'll return. Like, the occlude, like Trump will be the occluded Mahdi in the future QAnon Christianity.
So you can, everyone can have fun with that. Imagine that. That'll be fun. That's one of those things. It's like, God, give me a time machine. I just want to see it. I want to see what QAnon is in 100 years. But I'm, somebody says, uh, the, yeah, this would be the final Americanization of Christianity, which reminds me about something about Mormonism that I wanted to say. We talked about, me and Felix talked about Mormonism uh, on the show on Monday, and I wanted to elaborate a little bit because I've been thinking just about how ingenious the Mormons are uh, because they basically solved Protestant, American Protestant, the so, they've solved the problem of American Protestantism. And then because they had solved that later, after it fully matured, they were able to solve the problem of American capitalism. And in so doing, they have resisted a lot of the worst social decay of, of the rest of us, like light, dropping life expectancies, fertility rates, uh, drug addiction, all this stuff. Uh, and that's why I, I would, Felix is always saying, like, Mormons are who evangelicals think they are, and that's so perfect. That's so perfect. Because they both have a, a, a religion where they have fused prosperity, material prosperity, with spirituality and personified it in the country they live in. Uh, but the difference is, is that the Mormons maintain a social cohesion that allows capitalism to work for them, whereas the, the uh, evangelical has been fully dissolved and atomized by the market and is a complete, like, yeah. He's like, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a businessman. It's like, yeah, a Mormon guy, he has like three uh, car, car uh, washes that he owns. He's got a nice family, five, 16 kids, his, every weekend, his wife and all the other wives go in the, ba ba in the basement, the finished basement, and they all sell each other multi-level marketing uh, products to keep the economy moving. Uh, but yeah, evangelical thinks that's him, but no, he's on this fourth divorce, porn-addicted guy. With, he's like going like to burn down his Ski-Doo dealership for the insurance money. And it's because Mormons solve both of the big problems. How do you... How do you how do you be Christian in America? How do you, how do you reconcile uh, the, social, like the social aspect of religion with the depersonalizing experience of living in the material absurdity of America from the point of view of European settlers and their descendants? Uh, and, and even before that, how, and how do you uh, reconcile the inevitable like national... Uh, uh, fetishization that will occur, which is what we have done. This is what American Protestantism is, worshipping America. How do you reconcile that to a religious tradition, Protestant Christianity, that imagines its origins in a completely different place and time? Pre-capitalist, pre-European. How, how, how can you be an American and worship Americanly with that religion? Uh, and even more, deep, even more deep than that, how do you solve the problem of the ego-centered materialism of, the, of what American Protestantism will have to become to accommodate uh, the pursuit, the ability to always pursue material, accept, a material gain to offset spiritual loss. The crank, the one-way crank that will inevitably lead to the total desacralization of the public space and the profanement of all. It's a one-way ratchet. Um... And, and the thing that causes that is, uh, is, is an ego-based, an ego-fixated social order. It, you, you, because America is so prosperous, it, it twists 
it, it gets the wires to cross within the mind where material pursuit, where ego gratification, and ego gratification at a material level, because that's what's, that's what's to be had, is the same as the good, and therefore is God. But that means you're God, right? Kinda? You have to, unless you're, you can't be absorbed, right? You can't be absorbed into an eternal thing and also be the sum total of, of, of uh, the universe, the sum total of the, of the moral requirement of the universe to you is your advancement. How the hell do you handle that? And the Mormons solve that theological problem by saying, oh, when you go to heaven, you become God. You get your own planet and you get to do sins for eternity. That's how you, that's how you solve that problem. The other problem, of course, you solve by saying, oh yeah, no, Jesus came to America. He ministered to the natives. And then they had a big war. It's true. Uh, there's these golden plates. The, the, uh, the Garden of Eden is in Missouri. You've, you've replaced it. You've re-territorialized it. And then, by staying together, by staying together, by going to Utah together, being persecuted, really the persecution probably helped, they were able to create a social uh, order where rather than allowing capitalism to define the social space and dissolve them all away into particles... They use capitalism as like a capillary network to circulate money in their economy. Like, I'm not kidding. Multi-level marketing works in, in uh, Utah because the reason all those things fail the rest of the place is because eventually, and in, for most cases, very quickly, you run out of people to sell to because who the hell does anyone know? How many friends do people have? How many relatives do people have? How many close relatives do people have? It preters out. It's like in a perpetual motion machine in Utah. And not only that, like, that's, that's the housewives. They even, like, both... It's, there's, they've, they've solved all this stuff. They've got two parents working because the husband has the business that tars everybody's roof or whatever, and then he gets his you know, pool cleaned by the other guy, and it circulates. The circulation of economy, as they say, and that's always sunny. And the wives are giving each other Lulule or uh, like stretch pants and Tupperware parties. And so you've got both, both partners working, but the, 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 the wife's work is one that allows her to also be a domestic partner the way that traditional pat patriarchal capitalist society uh, uh, was built upon. And so as a result, the corrosive acid uh, of, of capitalism, unbound by, by any kind of social cohesion, which will be all capitalism in an opened social order that does not have like boundaries to it, uh, will lead to total, total atomization and anime. And so you've got all these guys, all these, all these evangelicals whose lives are miserable, who are filled with genuine hate in a way that would make Jesus' blood curdle, uh, and, and, and whose religion has been oriented subconsciously around sadism. It's because all the shit that they think they believe is, is, is directly wired to the opposite of that, and they're not even aware of it. And that's why, uh, that's why the Mormons won by being early adopters. Because they, they were like the bleeding edge people. They were the, they were the most sent, because, you know, uh, cults and future religions are filled with both the same type of people. The raw nerve, you know? The, the squeaky wheel, the, 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 ex, the more, the sensitive. The socially fragile, the person whose ability to absorb the reality is attenuated to a degree that makes their personality 
hypersensitive to certain inputs and therefore seeking of alternatives, seeking of a different way to be that will make life easier for them. And some of them end up, you know, going to, going to uh, Guyana and being uh, killed with uh, poison flavor aid in- injections. Some of them go to Utah and found a flourishing religious tradition that almost got a guy elected president. But it's the same type of people. Uh, Mormonism is, of course, associated most, most closely with Utah, but it was founded in upstate New York uh, by Joseph Smith. That's where the, the upstate New York is, where he claims he found the, the tablets, the, gold, the golden tablets. And upstate New York is also an area that at the time was called the Burned Over District because of its propensity to spark massive, conflagratory religious revivals of different types, mostly Protestant, charismatic religious traditions. And, and uh, Joseph Smith was one of those guys. And there's actually, I always, like, I've wondered about that. Like, why, why upstate New York? Why was that the burned over district? That was also, by the way, the, head, the hotbed of anti-Masonic uh, uh, p- politics. That's when the anti-Masonic party was born. Thurlow Weed, who became the uh, political major domo for William Seward, got his start with the anti-Masonic party. And that was upstate New York. I think it might have something to do with the Erie Canal. Hear me out. Might have something to do with the Erie Canal. Does that make sense? Uh, in fact, there is a there's a passage in Moby Dick that I want to read. Uh, because to me it really evoked what it must have been like to live in upstate New York and it makes me feel like oh, I get why this is a place where religious passions were so deeply felt Uh, so here it is Uh, this is Melville describing uh, the lives of people who are who live in the canal zone where, uh, where they, they put in the Erie Canal. Um, canalers, they call them. Freely depicted in his vo- own vocation, gentlemen, the canaler would make a fine dramatic hero, so abundantly and picturesquely wicked is he. Like Mark Antony, for days and days along his green-turfed, flowery Nile, he indolently floats, openly toying with his red-cheeked Cleopatra, ripening his apricot thigh upon the sunny deck. But ashore, all this effeminacy is dashed. The brigandish guise the canaler so proudly sports, his slouched and gaily ribboned hat betoken betoken his grand features, a terror to the smiling innocence of the villages through which he floats. His swart visage and bold swagger are not unshunned in cities. Once a vagabond on his own canal, I have received good turns from one of these canalers. I thank him heartily, would fain not be ungrateful. But it is often one of the redeeming qualities of your man of violence that at times he has a stiffened arm to back a poor stranger in a strait as to plunder a wealthy one. In sum, gentlemen, what the wildness to this canal life is, is emphatically evinced by this, that our wild whale fishery contains so many of its most finished graduates, and that scarce any race of mankind, except Sydney men, are so much distrusted by our whaling captains. Nor does it all diminish the curiousness of this matter, 
that to many thousands of our rural boys and young men born along its line, the probationary life of the Grand Canal furnishes the sole transition between quietly reaping in a Christian cornfield and recklessly plowing the waters of the most barbaric seas. So that's part of it, is that, um, is that the canal zone was a, was, a, um, it was a liminal zone. And liminal zones are where so social orders dissolve and are uh, if, turned ephemeral. And that creates social anxiety. It creates a need to find dry land again. Because some people are going to say fuck it and go off to the water, but others of less adventurous temperaments are going to try to find another explanation. And, uh, and, and blood and thunder religion is one. It's a way out of the thicket. It's a way out of the, of the, uh, of the, of the terrifying uh, cutthroat, dog-eat-dog savagery of an unrestrained uh, market milieu, which is what the, the Erie Canal represented. Because remember, this is 1840s. This is before... We're talking about any, uh, like, uh, industry is still very much in its infancy. The Industrial Revolution has barely begun in the United States. This is the closest thing we've got, really. Anywhere near a, uh, I mean, other than, of course, cities. And cities have oddless, always been godless dens, but they're very, they're so godless that the, the, the disorder they produce is very rarely cloaked in religious garb. That's for the countryside. That's where, that's where the, the, uh, the, the doe-eyed and the, and the earnest first confront uh, challenges to their uh, world and the need, to, the need to deal with those challenges, the need to bring them down. There's another bit about the... Um, there's another bit about. There's another bit in that definition or in that chapter, which also has this great description of how people from the uh, Great Lakes area are basically uh, coastal and have like sea water in their veins, and I agree with that. But he has one more like paragraph, I think, about about the religious beliefs in the in that area. Let's see if I can find it. Here it is. Here it is. This is a description of the canal. For 360 miles, gentlemen, through the entire breadth of the state of New York, through numerous populous cities and most thriving villages, through long, dismal, uninhabited swamps and affluent cultivated fields, unrivaled far fertility, unrivaled for fertility, by billiard room and bar room, through the holy of holies of great forests, on Roman arches over Indian rivers, through sun and shade, by happy hearts are broken, through all the wide contrasting scenery of those noble Mohawk counties, especially by rows of snow-white chapels, whose spires stand almost like milestones, flows one continual stream of Venetianly corrupt and often lawless life. There's a true Ashanti, gentlemen, there, howl your pagans where you ever find them, next door to you, under the long, long-flung shadow, 
and the snug patronizing lee of churches. For by some curious fatality, as it is often noted of your metropolitan freebooters, that they ever encamp around the halls of justice, so sinners, gentlemen, most abound in holiest vicinities. That was the, that was the quote I was looking for. That's even better. Whited sepulchers, exactly. The, 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 the inherent um, daily hypocrisy that must be absorbed by all people who both live according to what they imagine to be a religiously prescribed life and the necessity of commerce. It creates instability and anxiety. And it makes people do, if they are sensitive enough, if their antenna are pinged at the right frequency, it makes them do shit. Like, follow a dude to uh, Illinois who claims that he's read secret God messages on golden tablets that you can't see them. They, the, the angel came and took him away. You, he, I would love to show it to you, but he came. He, I was like, "This is amazing!" And then he and then he came. That's the like. It's amazing. It, it really does tell you that that religion is really fully a. It ha because it has to be an act of faith at the, at the center of it, right? Like, you have to be able to... Like, well, I, talked yes, I talked the other day about the lacuna in your eye where the stalk is. You don't have the hole there because you literally hallucinate something in there. Because you know enough, you see enough about what's around it that your brain just, like, fills it in. Oh, okay, this is what's there. Which is essentially what your brain does during any hallucination. Only at a more, like a more intense level, is like you're filling in the next step. Like your brain is imagining something, and then it just puts it there because your uh, perception is that intensified by the drug. Uh, but so you're, you always have to fill in. You, you're, you're very, even believing your eyes requires a leap of faith. Believing in your eyes requires a la an act of faith. And as such, all attempts to make a metaphysical understanding of the universe require that. <coughs> and so attempting to, like, defeat religion on those kind of grounds seems foolish to me. <coughs> you got you to challenge on the grounds of, does this religion actually adhere to the values, the universal values? I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'll say it. There is a universal value undergirding all religious traditions of any size. But, of course that's not how they're lived, because those are idealist concepts. And idealism, idealist concepts are to be molded by material reality, are to be shattered upon the rocks of reality that we then have to pick up. We pick up the pieces and put them back together. And we fuck up when we do it. We miss pieces. We, we, we leave something under, the, under a, a couch. And it's a little fucked up and messed up. And then we hand it off to the next generation. They drop it. They got to do it again. Every time something gets lost, something gets moved. But every time the, 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 the shape is caused by the collision between this idea and this reality. And that's why, like, American... Even though Christianity, I think, has at its heart, like, as, as, as perfectly stated... Uh, 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 real like it's 
it were it, it Christianity could, is is as true as Buddhism is. I could or close enough for government work at, at a certain like root base, just in terms of understanding of like the good God, uh, uh, our place in the universe in relationship to each other. But then we have a thing where people think that there's a Disney guy with a beard and you get to go to Splash Mountain for eternity after you die. That's not... And what comes from that is this psychotic materialism and the only way to accommodate a real materialist world is through competition. Ego gratification through competition and resource grabbing. Cooperation is antithetical, even though cooperation is the sum total of human thriving. Let's see, somebody says, why is Buddhism pretty good? I mean, tell that to the Rohingya, you know? It's like, it's not like there are Buddhist, like what, the countries where there's like a Buddhist supermajority that, that are not part of the global exploitation machinery that do not have misery in the same proportion. Because all of these things have been shaped by the material and lost along the way. I think there's a perception Buddhism is better because in the United States, if you're a Buddhist, kind of by definition, you have not accepted the, 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 uh, the ideological uh, issued kit. You know, you're, you've inherently said, ah, nah, this isn't for me because you probably grew up uh, at least nominally Christian. It requires like an introspection to do that. You didn't just pull it off the rack. And so those people tend not to be reactionary or less reactionary, I should say. And so there's association there with, uh, with, with the left. But that's just because, uh, just because of the selection bias of becoming a Western Buddhist. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle byers were burning, down the track came a hobo hiker. He said, boys, I'm not yearning. Headed for a land that's far away. Sign the crystal fountain. So come with me. Go and see the big rock candy mountain. How did feudalism uh, last so long in Japan? Uh, I mean, I I don't know that much about Japan, so I'm talking out of my ass. People can correct me. But my my instinctive thought is lack of competition. Lack of it was a unified state for so long. Because what broke the feudal what broke the feudal stalemate in Europe was the Black Death, and then uh, the emergence of capitalism out of the trade network that came along with the increased economic activity uh, afterwards because of the increase of circulating surplus. The surplus wasn't being hoarded, it was being circulated because uh, laborers could demand more for their money, for their labor, because there were fewer of them. And that created a, that, that broke the, uh, the relationship. It broke the leverage point between, between uh, the lords uh, and the serfs. And it started to dis it destabilized uh, uh, 
feudalism and also created much more circulating surplus, which was then absorbed into a network of trade. And of course, trade brings a competition, or trade is funneled through competition between those medium-sized states I was talking about that Europe had, which competed with each other. And in competing, did things like try to find new trade routes after the Ottomans plugged up the old ones and, uh, and investing in new uh, machinery and, uh, and, and intensifying economic activity and the levels of abstraction within economic activity. Whereas Japan was a unified state for the entire period. It, there was nothing to, uh, there was nothing to, dis, dis, to dis, disrupt the, the essential uh, dynamic between the two classes. And then what was it that eventually broke it open? The uh, Commodore Perry and the Black Fleet. But that's just off the top of my ass. I mean, the stuff about Europe, I'm more, I'm more, uh, I'm pretty confident I would defend that, but I just, I would assume that that would apply to Japan. All right. I'm going to wrap up in a minute here if anyone's got any questions. Commodore Matthew Perry. Can you imagine? Could I be any more of an imperial shill? Uh, somebody asked how long till baseball quits. I gotta say, the fact that they didn't stop after the Marlins thing happened makes me think they're just gonna say fuck it and go forward. And I think that the, the players are too fucking domesticated to push against it. Because who we got in the NBA or the, uh, or the Major League Baseball now? You've got to, like, all the white guys basically are Q dumbasses who don't think the fucking virus is real in the first place. So they have no incentive. They don't really care. So boom, you've got, like, that whole, that's what, a third of the players? basically ideologically captured. You don't even have to work on their material interests because they don't even know they have any in that context. Younger players really have no say, so that's another huge chunk. You know, there's very... And then everybody else is like, if I'm going to be the only one who says no, then I'm just going to lose out on money and I may be a roster spot for the rest of my career. All right, one more question. Oh, God, this is actually fun. I can't answer it. I just want to think about it as I talk because it's so good. What, if Trump loses, what does his lame duck period look like? <laughs> Part of me thinks he just pushed the button, you know? Think about it. He loses really bad. Too bad to effectively pull the, uh, the lever on a coup or whatever. And all, of his, and all the top Republicans realize he's expendable. And all the military guys realize Biden's not enough of a threat to bother uh, going in with Trump in since he's so unreliable. And then it's like, oh my God, I'm going to lose. I'm going to spend the rest of my life as a failed president who lost an election. And there's nothing more pathetic. That's why winning the presidency is so, like, 
so soul-destroying and why you have to be a sicko to want it. Because winning the presidency makes you one of the most one of the most consequential figures in world history by definition. Congratulations. Your ego has been put to a size that mortal men can't usually even dream of. On the flip side of that, though, is that there is no particularly disdained historical figure than the one-term president. You are setting yourself off for a humiliation, the, 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 the intensity of which only a handful of people have ever experienced. That's how, I mean, imagine how bad that must feel. To know that you're always going to be remembered as the loser president. Like, it's not nearly as bad for guys who run for president and don't get it. They usually get, it's like, uh, it's like Chips, right? So Chips had two guys. It had Eric, Eric Estrada and it had <coughs> Larry Wilcox. Now, in the years since then, Eric Estrada kind of stayed famous, but as a punchline. Like, oh, Eric Estrada, the loser old guy. Can you imagine him? He's trying to be sexy. Oh, that's funny. Oh, look, he's on fucking The Surreal Life, flashing Vern Troyer in a hot tub. Oh, this is very dignified. Oh, look, he's in. He's ironically in a uh, fucking punk rock band's video in the 90s. Oh, this is hilarious. Larry Wilcox, off the radar, just not even known. I think most people, in, in terms of show business, unless they're real sickos, would rather be Larry Wilcox. Like, that's what being a failed presidential candidate is. But being a failed president, that's being Eric Estrada. And who wants, no one gets famous trying to be Eric Estrada. So, and, and of course, we know that Trump has no moral imagination beyond himself. He's a fully isolate, that's why he's miserable, because he is a fully embodied American. He is the most American American. He embodies America, blah, blah, blah. We know this. He is, he is, the, he is the manifestation of one, so, of, a, of all phenomenon condensed into one person, as you will occasionally have. He's the Dr. Manhattan of America that way. So it's not like he's going to feel, oh, no, I can't kill anybody. He doesn't think people are real. He thinks in a real way that when he dies, the world will end. So why not just make that happen? And there's really nothing to stop him. You could argue that because it's a uh, it's lame duck period, maybe there'll be military people there. Like Maybe they give a special instructions to the football guy to, hey, you know, if there's nothing going on and he just tries to grab the football in the next two months, just tase him. I gotta figure those conversations have happened because it's not, it's not being a lib to, to point out that he is, he is fundamentally erratic in a way that no president has been really since Nixon. And Nixon was like doing, the, doing kind of a bit for a lot of it as a psyop. Even though he was totally bugfuck. Nixon was a man, Nixon was... He was, out, he was out there. And so was LBJ. It's kind of astounding to think that we survived the fucking height of the Cold War with two of the most paranoid, miserable freaks to ever be president. Both Nixon and uh, LBJ have recordings uh, after their landslide victories, because they both won back-to-back, which is astounding to think of. Or no, uh, eight years apart, which is astounding to imagine, that kind of shift uh, from one party to the other. But they, those are almost back-to-back. Two of the biggest blowouts in American history. Uh, but in both cases, or uh, in, in Nixon's case more, really, uh, they were disappointed in the congressional turnout and the, t the coattails. And they just, the day after the election, they're just kind of complaining about how 
it wasn't a big enough win. And that's just, it's evidence that these people are sick and they cannot be satisfied. They are hungry ghosts. You have to stop them from being able to feed. That's our only hope as a species. See you guys.